0: Jordan, what's up, my man? Another episode of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helly. We get right to it with our pregame warm-up topic. Orioles pitcher John Means delivers a no hitter against the Mariners. That's right, a no hitter, but very close to a perfect game. In fact, it would have been perfect except for a strike three wild pitch in the dirt. So it's a no hitter, but there are also no walks, no errors. Should Means' performance actually be considered a perfect game? He face the minimum amount of batters, the runner would eventually uh, get out on the base path. Uh, do you think there should be a rule or scoring change to make this a perfect game?
1: Oh, this is, this is, it's as close to a perfect game as you could ever dream of, right? There are, there are no errors, there are no hits, it's zeros, just zeros across the score box. And yet a runner reached, right? And that, that is the definition of a perfect game, is 27 batters up, 27 batters retired, Uh, He he technically got the extra strikeout, right? Uh, Blame the catcher, whatever you want to do in this situation. But I think if you're going to be a stickler, like it has to be 27 up 27 down uh, to be the perfect game. And this is better than a a 10 walk no hitter or, you know, there's a couple of errors out like this is as good as it gets without being a perfect game. Like, how many times has this happened in Major League Baseball history?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure if it's happened before. Uh, It's also the third no-hitter this season. Uh, The fourth, if you count Madison Bumgarner's seven-inning perfect game that wasn't a perfect game because it was just a seven-inning game because it was part of a seven-inning doubleheader in Major League Baseball. Uh, So it's just crazy. I actually don't feel as weird about not calling John Means no-hitter a perfect game, as I do about not calling Madison Bumgarner seven-inning perfect game a perfect game. Because if the game is scheduled to be seven innings going in, and you retire every batter that you face for those allotted seven innings, that should be a perfect game to me. This idea that Major League Baseball arbitrarily just decides that, no, it wasn't a long enough game, even though they're the ones that scheduled it, uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but I wonder if maybe we're seeing these no-hitters and these types of pitching performances at too high of a clip nowadays, right? I mean, we're just seeing this continued shift and evolution in Major League Baseball to where the pitching velocities are ramping up. Every team has multiple arms that can throw triple-digit miles per hour. Hitters who are either striking out or hitting home runs, that's sort of the way the game is played now, analytically speaking, Uh, and I wonder if the luster of the no-hitter as an accomplishment uh, is, is starting to wane a little bit, and if Major League Baseball looks at this and thinks, you know, we have a problem. When you start losing some of the romance of even an impeccable pitching performance, aren't we running into some troubled waters here if you're Major League Baseball?
1: Yeah, I, I think so, right? You never, you never want to downplay some of these monumental achievements, don't get me wrong um it's funny that this topic kind of will, will lead into later in the show when we have dustin demeter on from uh baseball and his approach to hitting and, and how it may be a little different than what we see at the major league level a little tease there for the folks <laughs> the fact of the matter is it's harder to hit a baseball now than at any point like in human history right it, it, it's harder to hit a, the pitching is so darn good and the way that baseball offensively is set up, it doesn't lend itself to just putting contact and things like that, right? And so you got to swing for the fences because if you run into one, at least it's a it's a run, right? Not just a bloop single or something like that. And and that is, I think, it is an issue for Major League Baseball because it leads to a less attractive brand of the game. And whether it's moving the mound back or lowering the mound or or figuring out something, right? There are all these radical ideas that they're putting out there. Um, it, it, it is, I, I think if this is, I, don't, I wouldn't say necessarily that the, the rash of no hitters is a problem, but the, it's a symptom, right? I think it's a symptom of the greater issue of baseball where there just isn't enough action. There isn't enough ball. There aren't enough balls in play and it, it, it makes for a less attractive product. It makes for a less attractive viewing experience for folks. And, and that's kind of the way it's been trending. There have been other times in baseball's
0: history where they ran into similar issues, right? Uh, The dead ball era and, you know, some of these other instances where they did change the rules effectively or change the configuration, just doing some dimensional things that would kind of help solve those problems. And they're going to experiment with some of these different rule changes at the minor league level, uh, whether or not it's banning the shift. Moving the mound back like a foot or something like that seems kind of crazy uh, to me. Uh, I think it can also be attributed to just the idea that analytics have paved the path for this new way of playing the game, which is weird because over a long sample size of 162 games, maybe it does bear fruit uh, in terms of the numbers put up by these hitters. Uh, But I think what you find is once you get into postseason situations, the value of those players getting on base is heightened because those are must-win situations. You kind of start seeing the style of play uh, at least flash or shade back towards a more traditional way of playing the game. And I think if there was just a more broad consciousness of the value of bases, right, and bases accumulation, not just by virtue of hitting it over the fence, but, but getting guys on base and Bunning them over, having them steal a base. You know, I think if we were just to get back to that mindset, uh, it would change a lot of the philosophy. It would change how we see Major League Baseball played. I just don't know how to prompt that. I'm not sure what is going to stimulate that paradigm shift when it comes to the mentality and the approach in Major League Baseball. I do think it is an issue, though, uh, because I don't think that the game is nearly – as exciting or as entertaining as it once was. All right, well, our show has never been that entertaining, so no pressure on us. You did let the cat out of the bag a little bit because uh, we do want to introduce our guest, Dustin Demeter, uh, in just a little bit. He is the reigning Big West Conference field, uh, as, as well as collegiate baseball, and a couple of publications out there, in fact, National Player of the Week. The University of Hawaii designated hitter went 11 for 19 with a 1.263 slugging percentage versus Cal State Fullerton. I mean, the dude is just on fire this past weekend. In fact, he's been on fire since coming back from injury. Missed 13 games with a foot injury. I think he's hitting like 460 since then. He had three home runs in that series against Fullerton. Had back-to-back six RBI games. He has six home runs in his last 10 games and despite missing those 13 games with the foot injury, he now leads UH in home runs, runs batted in, and OPS. This guy is on an absolute tear, and we're excited
1: to have him as our guest. Yeah, without a doubt. And the UH team as a whole is playing a lot better since he has come back into the lineup. And uh, I don't think that's an accident. Uh, his, his bat has been contagious, uh, and it's really, I think, aided a lot of the guys around him in that top half of the lineup. All right, so we'll get to him in a little bit, but we have some other
0: UH and beyond sports topics to hit up before we do so. So let's get to our game time. And the UH volleyball team battles UC Santa Barbara in the NCAA semifinals being held in Columbus, Ohio, and Hawaii at the time of this recording just concluded a three-set sweep of the Gauchos. It was the fourth time this season that the two teams have played. Hawaii now 4-0 and against the Gauchos this year, and they pull off a pretty dominant sweep, and this despite Rado Parapunov, who earlier this week was named the AVCA National Player of the Year, just the third player in Hawaii program history to achieve the honor, joining Yuval Kotz and Kostas Theo Harides. Uh, but he only hits 143 in this match. He did have a double double, 12 kills and 11 digs. Pat Gasman was huge. 10 kills, hit 625, six blocks. Colton Cowell, the Haleakala hammer, had 10 kills, hit 296. Hawaii served incredibly well. Six service aces, and their block was stout 13 and a half team blocks for the top blocking team in the nation. So they advance at the time of this recording. We're not sure who they're going to play in the national championship match. It'll be the winner of BYU and Lewis on that side of the bracket, but Hawaii in the, in the championship match for the fourth time in
1: program history. How did you enjoy this match, Jordan? Yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of the university of Hawaii faithful, there was a little bit of cautiousness, a little pessimism, if you will, (laughs) going into this match, just, the long layoff, right, the longest layoff of anybody in the tournament, the fact that they're coming off of a loss to UC San Diego in the Big West Conference semifinals at home, I think it's a little overblown sometimes. You know, it's like, oh, you know, an undefeated team, get the loss out of the way. You can kind of move on if you keep keep the unbeaten run. We saw it with Gonzaga in men's basketball. It's hard, right? But I, I do think it allowed them to reset. I'm not saying the loss is what helped propel them, right, but it did give them an opportunity to kind of – Reset everything, and all all the focus now is on the NCAA tournament, and obviously it's a two game tournament for them, having the buy into the semifinals. And once they got going midway through that first set, you, you saw a team that played with a lot of confidence. um The it, in a team, I thought that you know, obviously they had the best hitting team in the country. Basically, do it defensively, right? If if you will, right? Whether it's it's the service line, right? Jakub Tella, three of the six aces for the Bows. And then at the net, Patrick Gassman, Chaz Galloway getting in on the act, uh, and just shut down a Santa Barbara team that you know needs to hit at a pretty efficient clip because of how good they are defensively, right? But maybe aren't necessarily a team with the huge high high firepower, uh, and and that they kind of took UC Santa Barbara out of their typical recipe. You would think that they would need to beat Hawaii, and so. I think for the University of Hawaii, the job well done, right? They played better, obviously, than the last time out against UC San Diego a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I, I think we'll see a team that's going to need to play even better in the national championship game, whether it's against BYU or against Lewis. I think BYU up 2-0 last check uh, in that second semifinal. Uh, Rado Parapunau's got to play a little bit better, right? The hitters have to be a little more clinical. Uh, but if that block can do what they do and that serve can do what they, uh, you know, collectively – do what they did earlier today they they'll be in good shape yeah it was fun i mean a 3-0 sweep i wasn't expecting that i wasn't expecting them to to ride out of there in minimal sense i thought you know it was just a match that that they'd be pushed a little bit more um but it was, it was nice to see them get back to the winning ways
0: yeah, pessimism. I, I don't know. It's just it's ingrained right in, in Hawaii fandom, because that first outserve from Hawaii side, I was just thinking like, oh, gosh, they're gonna blow this. Oh, man, this is gonna end in disappointment. But of course, uh, it didn't. And they were actually pretty dominant. You're right. They, they didn't play their sharpest transition game. Rado wasn't at his standard level, certainly according to the stats. Uh, But I think that's how they're going to win. That's how they've always won here the last couple of seasons is when they serve tough and they're able to score from the service line and when that block is working. And both of those things are very much related to one another. The tougher they serve, the more out of system they get the opposition, the better prepared and formed that block at the net can be because it forces the other team to be more predictable offensively. So those two things are very much correlated, and I I do think that that's the key to success for Hawaii. We never really got to ask – The question, uh, after they lost in the Big West Conference tournament, whether or not that was a good loss. They still got the number one seed in the NCAA tournament, and so it didn't penalize them in any way, shape, or form. But just, yeah, emotionally, mentally, was that maybe a loss that they could extract a little bit more of a silver lining from? Uh, Was that one of those losses that can be considered constructive for them? And I I do think to a degree it did. It, It proved that they weren't invincible. Uh, they could be beat. They could be beat by a team they had previously beaten four times. And so I think it's just that idea. Generally, don't take anything for granted. Play every point like it is a meaningful point. Uh, and I think it just takes some of that added pressure too—the idea of being unblemished, of you know trying to finish with the perfect season. We were talking about perfect games earlier. That perfect season out the window. Now it's just a chance for Hawaii to go out there and do their thing. All right. We mentioned Rado Parapunov. National Player of the Year, third in program history. So, where do you put Rotto on the list of all time greats at UH,
1: Jordan? Oh, he, I mean, he's probably on the Mount Rushmore, right? When you're talking about the all time great, only three guys, right? Costa Theo Herides and Yuval Cots, uh, guys that have gone on to win National Player of the Year. And, and I think for Rotto, you know, I don't know if I'd put him necessarily number one just yet, right? Theo Haridis, I think, won it. Did he win it twice? I twice, he's the one to win it twice. You know, Rotto didn't do that. Kostas and, and the crew in 0-2 won the national championship. We, we, I know they took down the banner and all that kind of stuff, but they, it's, it's still <laughs> a national championship. Happened. We saw it happen. We, we saw it happen. It happened on the court. They, 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 they won, right, in, in um, State College all those years ago. Um, but he, he's up there. And if they can win a national championship and if he can be a huge reason why, um, you know, then then it's a very, very legit conversation as to is he the best ever, right? Because the game has grown the game has grown right men's volleyball and and the level that they play at now the 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 way the service line is used as a a, as a mode of of offensive weaponry in men's volleyball you know and compared to years past even going all the way back to those days as good as those guys were um you know the game has has gone to a different level so so yeah I I think if if they win the national championship and Rado plays like he can right because he you know a little bit of a slump right now I, I think that's fair to say the last couple of matches, he hasn't quite shown what he's done over the course of his career. So, if he can do that on Saturday, we'll we'll, we'll maybe have to have this conversation again next week.
0: Yeah, UV is always for me going to be that guy. Um, he was I, just, different, I don't know. Right? Yeah. It, it, yeah, he just was different. It, it was a different era. As you mentioned, it was pre rally scoring, it was pre libero. Uh, and so the game has evolved. I think it's harder to be a prolific score now because of the libero position how high quality the defense in men's volleyball is Uh, defenses that lead to rallies that we used to only attribute to the women's brand of volleyball because of the high quality of defense on that side. Men's game is changing and evolving. So I do think it's a little bit harder to be a productive uh, and efficient and prolific scorer now. But yeah, UV is just going to be that guy because you're also talking about an era where these dudes were taking like 70 cracks at it in a match. You know, I mean, it just, they, they, had so much more in terms of responsibility because those matches would last longer. Uh, Kostas was fantastic. Uh, I think if you're making a short list, you probably got to put Clay Stanley up there as well because yes. of what he accomplished even after his University of Hawaii career. But he was a service ace machine. Um, there have just been so many legends that have gone through those hallways that have worn that uniform. But yeah, if Rotto brings home a national championship and if he plays well in that match after being named a national player of the year, you'd have to have him be right there under Yuval Kotz. And, and I think that those two compare more favorably just because they're both opposite hitters. Theo Horides was an outside hitter. Same with Clay Stanley. Those are two different positions. And so I think that the comparison would be a little bit more feasible when you're talking Rotto versus UV. But yeah, for me, uh, Yuval Kotz, uh, you know, Rado even said it on this podcast a couple of episodes ago. Uh, Yuval going to be the gold standard. And I kind of agree with him. All right, moving elsewhere in Manoa, we'll go to University of Hawaii. Hoops recruiting. That's right, some news being made on the basketball front. The Rainbow Warriors receiving more commitments, Jordan, including 6'9 Texas transfer Kamaka Hepa. He was a top 50 recruit out of high school, raised primarily in Alaska, but did spend some time in Oregon playing prep basketball and was a highly rated prospect and recruit. He is of native Hawaiian ancestry, his dad born and raised on Kauai. Now, he spent three years at Texas, started 12 games, played somewhat sparingly, didn't put up really impressive numbers, uh, but a good get nonetheless, uh, even just aesthetically speaking, to have a player transferring from the Big 12 to Hawaii. They also got a commitment from Amoro Lotto, a 6'3 combo guard from College of Southern Idaho. Averaged 12 points over there, but shot 47% from outside the three point arc. Uh, UH did not, however, fulfill the rumor that had Drew Bugs, their all time assist leader, who transferred to Missouri last season. The rumor was that he was going to return to Manoa. That did not come to fruition. Instead, Bugs decided to transfer from Missouri to Winthrop. All right, so what's your level of excitement, hopefulness with this group of prospects? And is that impacted in any way
1: by the fact that that Drew Bugs rumor did not come true? Yeah, it's tempered a little bit, right? There's a little bit of cold water thrown on it with the fact that Drew Bugs is not coming back to Hawaii, right? Because he's a known commodity. We know what Drew Bugs has done in that rainbow uniform on that court. And it was a very successful tenure right, with him as a point guard and filling a need that the University of Hawaii, I think, has is, is kind of not yet replaced since he left, right, after the 2019-2020 season. And so that would have been nice, and, uh, a veteran point guard to have with a lot of these newcomers coming in, Samuta Avea coming back into the fold. That would have been a, a big deal. And so that's still the very big question mark. And, and I'm excited about the other two guys. Like Lotto, I think, is at least addressing – a need for hawaii and that is a shooter i I think that we have seen this program the way it's constructed under Aran ganat if you can have a shooter to space things out right they like to play through the high post at least we saw that in this abbreviated 2021 season but they didn't really have the consistent reliable shooter to space the floor for those guys to operate open things up a little bit more and a guy who shot 47 percent from three you know a different competition obviously in the big west but that that's encouraging signs and and you know, we, we saw what could be with guys like Eddie Stansberry and guys like that in the past out-and-out shooters, right? You need that. You, you really do. You need guys that can, that can knock it down from the outside, and, and that'll help tremendously for a team that was so inconsistent offensively this past season, in, in part because when shots weren't falling, they, they didn't have a lot of answers, right? And a guy who can, can reliably knock down the, the three-pointer is a, a big, big difference. And, and Kabaka Hepa, I'm really excited about him. I wouldn't read too much into his high school days, but that's when I saw him, right? I, I, I got to call some of his games at the Iolani Classic a handful of years ago, and that was the same tournament with guys like R.J. Barrett and Montverde that came down. I believe they actually made the final and lost to Montverde that year. Um, Andrew Nemhard, who's now at Gonzaga. Philip who was playing professionally in Europe, and he was one of the best four or five guys in that tournament. 6'9", can run, pretty good shooter, really stretches the floor, uh, kind of your prototypical stretch for maybe not the most fleet of foot guy side to side, and maybe that's why it didn't quite work with him and Shaka Smart system. I think at Texas it was I, it was always an odd pairing to me in that you know havoc full court press get up and down style of play. But now you get into you know a little slower pace, a little more methodical, a guy that can play inside and outside. In Coach Gannat's system, you know, the numbers aren't impressive at all at Texas, right? The guy averaged less than basically 10 minutes a game, in the games he played over the course of his career never averaged more than three points a contest. But I think a fresh start for him, a guy whose family, obviously, is from Hawaii, a guy who is native Hawaiian, like it almost was meant to be. Like he had to come and play for UH at some point, right? He had to play for the University of Hawaii at some point. And I think, you know, lesser competition, obviously, than what the Big 12 is, difference fits stylistically with the offense. He's really good. At least he was as a high school player. Uh, and I think if he can recapture some of that magic, a couple of years in Barrow, Alaska, where he's born and raised, then he went down to Jefferson High School in, in Portland for his last couple of years of prep basketball and won a couple of state titles there in Oregon as well. Um, if you get a, at least a little bit of what we saw in college, the promise, the potential, uh, I, I think a, a change of scenery and, and in the Big West in that level, I think he can fit in really nicely. Yeah, you would hope that he could thrive in the Big West Conference. I think,
0: as I mentioned, almost aesthetically, uh, it's already a win for Hawaii just because it looks good, right? It looks good in terms of the branding of Hawaii basketball that they're able to pull this guy from a Big 12 Power Conference program. And – Frankly, Hawaii has actually had some success with Division I transfers from Power Five conference programs. You look back on Noah Allen in year two for Ron Ganat from UCLA. Uh, you look back on the two Missouri transfers uh, in Stefan Yankovic and Negus Webster Chan. Now, I've heard some people that have suggested that Kamaka Hepa might be the. Top recruit in the last 10 years for Hawaii, just in terms of the fact that he was a top 50 out of high school. Maybe we'll pump the brakes a little bit on that because that puts an awful lot of expectation and pressure uh, unduly on uh, this young man. But yeah, I think that he falls in line perhaps with that lineage of success in Division one transfers. You hope that it pans out that way, uh, but it remains to be seen. But again, I think just aesthetically, uh, it looks good that Hawaii was able to bring in a guy like Kamaka Hepa. And I do think that taking his skill set, you know, Brian McInnes had uh, our buddy had a really good comparison and said that his role will possibly be like a Christian Stan Hardinger, right? He's of a similar frame. Christian Stan Hardinger might be a little bit more athletic, uh, but in terms of a guy that can hit from a perimeter, a guy that can make plays down in the Paint and posted area. Uh, yeah, I think Kamakahepa could sort of fill out that kind of a presence and role. And I'm excited to see how he pairs alongside a guy like Samuta Avea and what is turning out to be a pretty athletic bunch for Hawaii. Uh, gives them a lot of options and what they can do schematically here going forward. Uh, I do think that the point guard position, though, it's not a sure thing. With the departure of Drew Bugs last year, they basically had open auditions all season long with Javon McClanahan, Noel Coleman. Uh, Bawali Bales, who decided to leave the program to uh, play professional basketball. And so I don't think you solve that problem by not bringing Drew Bugs back. Uh, I think that, that means that that situation potentially can still be in a state of flux, and that's going to have to be addressed. Had that sort of happened, and, and if we got a healthy Drew Bugs coming back, I would have been like you. I would have thought, man, uh, get ready to uh, mark up a, a strong contender label here for this Hawaii team. And it could turn into something like that as well. I do think that this coaching staff seems to be very excited about what they've collected. I think, they feel like they have a championship caliber squad out there, but uh, I would agree with you. I would feel a lot better about it if they had a little more veteranship and experience at that point guard spot. And it does lead to a lot of questions, and I'm not sure if we'll ever really know the answer, but if Drew Buggs was looking to transfer from Missouri, and if there was any truth to the rumor that he was interested in coming back, you have to ask the question, why didn't it happen? What lines of communication were missed? along the way. uh, I'm not sure if we're ever going to get a legitimate answer to that question. All right. Well, we're going to have questions answered based on projections in years to come regarding this latest NFL draft. haven't had a chance to talk about this yet, Jordan, Uh, but the NFL draft was last week. Highlights included Trey Lance from North Dakota State, the quarterback, going to the 49ers at number three. That was a big question mark as to what the 49ers would do in that position. They take Lance. The Dolphins end up going the route of taking a receiver in Jalen Waddell, former Alabama pass catcher, former teammate of tua vailoa so they're going to pair the... Those two, again, uh, they took Waddle at six. Pene Sewell went to My Lions, the big offensive tackle from Oregon who opted out this past season. The Bears got Justin Fields. I guess they didn't feel like Andy Dalton solved all of their quarterback issues. They take Fields out of Ohio State at number 11. I think that that's a great get. I imagine you're pretty excited about that one, Jordan. And how about the Patriots, right? They were in the market for a future quarterback, a potential franchise guy. They have Cam Newton there, but Mac Jones out of Alabama ends up falling to them, basically, and they select him at number 15. Now, while the draft was going on, you had all of this peripheral talk and buzz surrounding the situation involving Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers, and that still has not come to any solution, uh, and the future in Green Bay for Aaron Rodgers is still very much in question, but what What storylines from this
1: NFL draft stood out most to you? The Rogers news, right? Basically the day before the draft took up a lot of people's attention, but there's no resolution just yet. And so that's, that's sort of a to be continued storyline coming out of draft week last week. Um, I'll spare everybody my, you know, 10 minute deep dive on Justin Fields and the bears. I was just excited that they, they went and got him right. And and the fact that the, the Niners zeroed in on Trey Lance, all of a sudden you see, the fourth and fifth quarterbacks basically right whoever that was going to be after trevor lawrence and zach wilson went one and two the bears had an opportunity some other teams maybe be interested the vikings the the patriots obviously in a quarterback and so the bears had a chance right And they've been so inept at quarterback just so bad at the position they had to go take a swing like swing for the fence he might be terrible he might be an absolute bust but you know what they had to try they had to go make the move and just see what they've got with a very young, intriguing prospect in Justin Fields. And I hope it works out. I, I really like him. I, I think he's not a finished product by any means. I, I do think if, if there's any possibility of him sitting and watching a little bit behind Andy Dalton, maybe not an entire year, uh, but at least for a little bit at the beginning. And, and I think Matt Nagy and that coaching staff, it, 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 it's a pick that I think Matt Nagy was much more on board with than, than Ryan Pace, the general manager. I think this is more of a naggy pick versus a front office pick. Uh, and for that reason, I'm pretty excited about it. But the, the storylines, I'm really excited about the, the young QBs reuniting with their, their receivers. You talked about Tua and Waddle, and, and they had their pick, right, of Alabama receivers, whether it was going to be Waddle or Devonte Smith, who goes a few picks later to Philadelphia. And all of a sudden, he's reunited with Jalen Hurts, who was his quarterback at Alabama, obviously, before. Hurts finished his career at Oklahoma, and then you got Jamar Chase, the outstanding LSU wide receiver, who I had as my number one wide receiver as well, going to the Bengals and realigning with Joe Burrow there. I think all three have a good shot of being really good pros. Um, I think the Philadelphia situation, obviously, with Jalen Hurts, maybe a little tougher situation, not sold on him quite yet at quarterback. I think a lot of people are excited about Joe Burrow. But I'm I'm very, very high on Waddle and Tua in, in that pairing. Uh, and again, they had their choice, right? They had their choice of reuniting Tua with one of those two guys, and they go with Waddle, who I think maybe a little more sturdy than Devontae Smith just from a build standpoint. Uh, and fast is all heck, and shifty is all heck. And and so if you can get Tua a guy now to actually throw to, right, we'll, we'll get a better reading on, on what kind of pro he's going to be. So I, I, I'm really excited. All three pairings might work out very well, but I, I'm excited to see how the success goes. All right, well, let's move over to our Domino's Hawaii main topping, and
0: it is is our discussion with Dustin Demeter. He is red hot since he has come back from injury for Hawaii, not yet healthy enough to play in the field. Uh, He's just been dh and but boy, has he thrived in that role. We talked about the numbers earlier. Uh, So without any further ado, let's get to the uh, piping hot Dustin Demeter. All right, we're here with Dustin, and uh, you must be one of the guys, I think, in a long college baseball season, oftentimes bye weeks are welcome, but you must be one of the guys that was kind of thinking, let's just keep on playing. The way you're hitting, you probably don't want any time off, huh? Uh,
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a good time for us to have a bye week. um, Obviously, we're pretty hot right now, Um, taking three or four from Fullerton, but uh, yeah, I mean, it would have been nice to play this weekend, but, you know, it is what it is.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of reason to feel good this week. Obviously, you get some national recognition uh, because of your exploits uh, at Fullerton. Uh, But what you've been doing really since you came back from injury is is pretty astounding. Uh, Let's just start with that honor, though. Uh, getting the big west conference field player as well as getting a uh, collegiate baseball national player of the week and just to get that kind of recognition with some of the twists and turns and injury issues you would have to you've had to fight off in your career how good does something like that feel
2: Yeah I mean it feels pretty good I'm not going to lie um it was really cool to to see that like just as we came off the plane my buddy showed me the uh his phone he's like dude you're the the national player of the week and um it took a while for that to kind of set in. Um, but you know, definitely like looking down the road, uh, looking back on that, that'll, that'll be a pretty, pretty special award that, um, I would have won. So it was was pretty neat.
0: Yeah. I mean, when, give us a sense of, of, you know, when you're playing baseball at the division one college level and you're playing in, in a conference like the big West conference where you're going up against, uh, elite pitching almost every single week, just what it feels like when you are feeling good and when you're in a certain rhythm like you're experiencing right now. What does stepping into the batter's box feel like and what is that experience like?
2: And like you said, the Big West has a a lot of good pitching. So if you're not feeling good and feeling confident in the box, it can turn um, an 0 for 4 into an 0 for 8 really fast. So I think a big thing for me is to get in the same place mentally every single game and um, just not give at-bats away. So uh, just basically taking it one pitch at a time, that's what our coaching staff kind of preaches is uh, one pitch at a time and, you know, not thinking about mechanics or anything like that. And, and it's just almost like a you versus me moment and having a clear objective every single time you, you step up to the plate. Um, I think situational hitting is, super important. I think it's like, it's kind of getting lost a little bit in the game today, especially at the big league level. So basically just taking each at bat the same with little, little differences for like, for example, if there's a runner on second base with nobody out, your clear objective is to move him to third. Um, And obviously we have like Fogel and Beza hitting behind me and those guys rake. So (laughs) I'm not worried about, you know, getting that RBI necessarily. I'm worried about setting those guys up because I have complete trust that they're going to do it too. They're going to do their jobs. And I think that's how we've been clicking as a team the last couple of weekends is um, everybody's just realizing we have to, everybody has to do their role. And that's different. It's different every time you step up to the plate and just understanding that and being in a good place mentally where you, where you feel like you're going to hit the ball hard every single time. um, I think all that is key to succeed against like you said really
0: good big west pitching. Has it been difficult at times in your career to have that kind of thinking to to be able to clear your mind uh in that way uh because like I said, you know, some injury issues and other things. Uh, how much does sort of just being an experienced veteran player help in in giving you that opportunity to put yourself in that mind space?
2: Um I think experience has has taught me a lot of things. So, um I would say it's key and like up and down our lineup, we have experienced hitters um, guys with a lot of years playing in the big West under their belt. So I would say it's, it's pretty important. Um, And yeah, I mean, it was, it was really fun this weekend because like everybody, like I said, everybody's doing their jobs and everybody we were playing for each other just so well. And um, it was so much fun.
1: Yeah, and, and Dustin, you know, with, you missed some time with injury, and and you come back, and I think it's no accident the team has also played a lot better since you have been inserted back in the lineup. Um, that time off, uh, was there anything that allowed you to sort of reset mentally, or what, what was the key? I guess spending all that time off and then getting back into the lineup and performing the way you have. You know, I think it was good
2: to reset. Um, obviously, I had the injury and. Um, it was just rehabbing and I was watching the games. And as you watch more and more baseball, you kind of understand what winning winning baseball looks like. And um, um I mean it was really it was good. But then I just came back and I guess I just I do, like you said I kind of hit the reset button and it was just like I'm gonna just take this one step at a time, um, one pitch at a time. So I mean it was good to have that break. It sucked because I really wanted to play, obviously. Um, but I think I don't think it. I don't think I, like like you said. There's no. I don't. I think people just started buying into their into their rules. Like I said, and everybody just like like we obviously everybody wants to win, but we're starting to figure out the things that we have to do to win. Um, and like so many guys this weekend had incredible weekends. Like. Um I think Fogel hit like 500. Safae has been an absolute monster in the lineup. Stone's been a beast. Like everybody who's needed to step up, Scotty was great, Cole, everybody was great. Um and then obviously the pitching too. Um we have like an incredible pitching staff. Um our one-two punch and then with Polly back there. I mean, it's 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 pretty incredible and um it'd be nice we just got to keep it going. Um, obviously we had the bye week, but that's going to be good for us because we got some guys like banged up right now and it'll give them a little extra time to get healthy. And we just got to keep that edge to us. Cause we were playing, we've been playing with an edge the last couple of weeks uh, where, you know, we're going to, we're, we're going to beat you. And I think that's absolutely key is playing like having a clear identity as a team, playing with an edge and playing to win.
1: Is that a result of of a conversation amongst the, the team, amongst the guys? Was it a conversation with, with Trap in the team? Or is it just kind of something that you had been working towards and and maybe, you know, you, you guys got over a hurdle or something like that? What, what was kind of the catalyst for that? You know, I don't know if it's a shift in mindset or just a realization of what you guys were trying to get to?
2: Yeah, I think it was a, a number of things really. Um after we lost that series of Bakersfield, um, Coach Trap did a great job, and he gave us like an extra day off. Um, said everybody go take a mental day, uh, physically just get off your feet. So that was huge from Trap's standpoint, just understanding his ball club and what what they needed. So that was the first thing was like, all right, Trap's kind of hitting. He wanted, to, I think he kind of wanted to hit the reset button. I can't talk for him, but he's like, all right, let's let's take this one step at a time. And then from uh, from our other coaches as well as trap have started preaching, get the ball out of the air. Like our BPs, like our batting practices have been drastically different uh, for the last couple of weeks because we have a clear objective in mind to keep the ball out of the air. Don't hit lazy fly balls because when you hit balls on the ground, they can find holes, but those lazy fly balls, they, they get caught 90% of the time. Right. So It was a little bit of a – and we started, like, competing more in batting practice, which is really cool. Started scoring batting practice, and we have, like – we have, like, uh, challenges in batting practice, and then we have, like, winners and losers, and the losers have to, like, clean up or whatever, do some, like, physical thing. And it's really, like, brought our offensive unit together. And then, obviously, when you back that with, like, the tremendous pitching that we've been getting, like – i mean that's that's how that's how you win so um it's been it was a it
0: was really good it, it kind of sounds like you and maybe some of your teammates have just been able to kind of slow things down mentally maybe even emotionally and i wonder if in a season where the schedule layout is like this year's four game series doubleheader saturdays if it kind of gets a little rough and tumble especially in the middle portion of the season and so slowing things down and just kind of easing the pace a little bit helps oh absolutely um you said
2: it really well um another thing that 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 uh, came to my mind when you said that uh was trap has really been emphasizing uh do simple better like simplify the game which in turn slows the game down and all of a sudden you have plans in the batter's box and you're, you're trying to do your job because you're simplifying and you're slowing it down and you're seeing, okay, I have a clear objective. This is what I need to do. Like I need to bunt the runner over. I need to hit the runner in. Um, and I think that doing simple better is like a great approach to baseball because it's very easy to, to like overcomplicate it, but it's a simple game at its base. Like it's very base core. Baseball is very simple. So I think we really got back to, Limiting all the other stuff and just doing simple better, and I think the past couple of weekends have shown that um, we're doing it well. And um, it was it was a good thing from from Coach
0: Trout. Now, by all accounts, you've sort of always been a guy you, you like to maintain a certain focus, um, especially as you prepare for uh, a game. You know, you, you see, you seem to have a routine that you like to stick to. Have you always sort of been that way? Have you always been Uh, a a little bit more of of a um, you know focus on the task and business at hand kind of guy
2: yeah um, earlier in my career I was less routine based Um, I didn't really realize the value of a routine Um, it would just kind of be like go hit in the cage get your ground balls Um, but like you said when you can focus more often and really get those like game like reps and batting practice Taking batting practice very seriously, taking your fielding work very seriously, and not that I wasn't before, but I didn't have the right focus. And I think that routine-based mentality is uh, something that Coach Brown really emphasized to us when he came to the program. Um, he he was like all the best hitters in the world have a very routine-based regimen, and that's why they're successful. Because and then they can when they're not doing well you can still go back to your routine. And it's just something that you can rely on. And it's something consistent like a very inconsistent game. So I think Coach Brown has really done a, a good job of letting us know how important routines are.
1: Yeah, I'm always fascinated, right, um, by by good hitters and, and good hitting teams and how they approach the game, right? Because I think you alluded to it earlier, right? Uh, Major League Baseball, we're seeing so many balls in the air, right? It's, it's all about launch angle. It's all about swing playing. you got to be able to get it out of the park. Um, but what you've talked about and you you shared a little bit of what Trapp has told you guys, right, it's kind of the opposite. It's, hey, put the ball in play, keep it on the ground, make things happen in that way. And I think a lot of, a lot of baseball fans can appreciate that. Um, and so I'm just kind of curious how that has manifested over time throughout. Yeah. I mean, cause you've been in the program a number of years now mm-hmm. and just how that has sort of evolved in your time there or, or just sort of your baseball upbringing and seeing that, right. Cause I think there are a lot of people who enjoy watching the collegiate game for that very reason and watching lower levels of baseball for that very reason, as opposed to just watching a lot of home runs and strikeouts, uh, you know, when you get to the highest level.
2: Right. Um, pretty much since day one coach Trapp has like has been like he doesn't I don't think he likes strikeouts I don't think anybody does um obviously when you put the ball in play you have a better chance of getting a hit than when you don't so um yeah I mean my like individually my approach has kind of evolved over the years um going back to my freshman year where I didn't like have much of an approach. It was more just C ball hit ball, which when you're, when you're locked in the zone, that really works. And you're just like, when you're seeing it real good, um, that approach kind of works. But, um, for me personally, um, I have more of a, I can walk myself through at bats at this point in the in the batter's ball on the, in the, uh, the on deck circle. And I think that's going back, um, that's really good. That's really slowing the game down, uh, which I I struggled with before in my career. Is just slowing it down and seeing the task at hand, what needs to be done, and then going out and doing it. So I think for me personally, it's been a, it's been a, it's a lot of like visual visualization in the in the on deck circle, and understanding how they're going to attack me too, um, because sometimes you know you're going to see a lot of breaking balls in that bat or sometimes you're going to see a lot of a lot of heaters in that bat and um just kind of understanding what stage of the game the game is in um and i think that has really benefited me and and it's allowed me to get in a lot of hitters counts lately um so when you have count leverage you know you can get a little more specific with what you want to attack and um i think lately it's just been they've been falling Um, I've been hitting the ball pretty good. Um, like obviously, I mean, I've, I've, I've hit a lot of line drives. Um, and then another big thing that Mike Brown brought to us was like the two, the two strike approach. And, um, I have, I have a, my two strike approach is very, is a lot less specific. It's more like, you're not going to get me out. And, um, I think we've kind of adopted that as a team more and more over the last couple of years is just like the two strike approach is about not striking out not letting him beat you like that and you know when you put the ball in play sometimes good things happen so um that's what i would say approach wise for myself is uh it's very specific to the the game situation the count situation and i think that like you like you guys said it's like it's the experience um Been playing in the Big West for, I think this is my fourth season playing in the Big West, aside from that injury year, and um, just kind of understanding, seeing great hitters come through here, and how they they approach the game, and how they approach at-bats,
1: so it's learning from a lot of good people is what it is. And of course, uh, you know, home runs aren't bad by any stretch of the imagination, right? And some of those line drives are turned into shots out of the park, and and three last weekend, you got six in your last ten games. Is is there a, is there a self reminder in it all? Because you've shared with us a lot of your approach so far. Uh, you know, in our conversation, is there a sort of a self check as to hey, don't go chasing the long ball, don't don't get caught up in in, in those balls leaving the park, and kind of staying steady in what you do uh, because it's been hot right now. Right.
2: I mean, yeah, I don't. I used to struggle with that. I'd, I'd hit a home run and then I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go hit another one. Um, but that that just does nobody any good Um, when you chase a long ball it it leads to it leads to a slump is what it leads to Uh, so so to answer your question no not really I haven't I haven't been chasing home runs Um, I've obviously had a few the last couple weekends but um, it's because I have a I think it's because I have a very specific approach and I'm just kind of learning to get the head out a little bit, like the bat head out a little bit. And, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to get some pitches to drive and I haven't been missing them lately. So I just you know, I just hope that keeps going.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. You haven't been doing uh, too much missing. Uh, give us a little bit of, of a background of what growing up was like for you uh, in California. Uh, born in Santa Barbara, grew up mainly in uh, Galita, California. Uh, Dos Pueblos High School, which I believe is uh, at least in part famous for being the alma mater for Katy Perry. Uh, is that, is that correct? Um, what was, what was sort of growing up in your, in your household and, 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 in, in your early affiliation with the game of baseball, what was it like?
2: Yeah, growing up in Santa Barbara or Goleta is where I grew up. Um, it was, it was incredible. Honestly, I have like, I have awesome set of parents. Um, my cousins actually were my neighbors and they're like, they're baseball fanatics too. Um, actually, on that day that I hit those two home runs, my little brother had three home runs for an NAI school. And my other little cousin threw a complete game shutout for Oral Roberts. So that was no that was, way. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was me, my brother Davey and my two cousins, Luke and Isaac. And we'd, we were always obsessed with baseball, like always. Um, we played wiffle ball in the summers, like like just crazy amounts of wiffle ball, <laughs> like, like like three four games a day, um, and it was good because we were always competing, you know, like it was always a drive to win. Um, so that that was like a really special part, and I, like I'll I'll always remember that. But um, up until like and then up until high school, we had, we all four played. think we all four played on the same team at one point on the varsity team uh maybe three or four uh but my senior year my my little my little brother was the second baseman i played shortstop so that was pretty special too um but yeah growing up in Galita was awesome and you know i was lucky enough to get the offer to come to hawaii and like i jumped on it right away because i was like you know i'll go play in the big west and play in hawaii (laughs) like sign me up because at the time, there, there was not a lot of offers coming in. And, I mean, that's pretty much as good as it gets. It's like, I'll, I'll just go play in Hawaii, play in the Big West. Like, uh, so that was pretty special. That was a really special. I remember that one. I was actually playing wiffle ball with my friends when I got the call. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it was like, come out and visit and uh, we're going to offer you. So I was like, all right, say less. Um, but, yeah, man, it was it was special. And then getting to play here too, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change any of it
0: because, like, it's just been really fun. Yeah, it's kind of unreal. I, I think just this generation of of college baseball players, and, and especially the the older year guys like you, uh, you know, you've been around the program for a while, and you know, you have to traverse the COVID shortened year. Uh, you yourself having to deal with, uh, you know the injury in 2019 and and sitting out for an entire season uh missing 13 games this year with the foot and uh, just how difficult has it been at times and just the unpredictability of a college baseball and college athlete's career in general
2: yeah it's it's crazy unpredictable um like growing up like you're never like oh i'm i'm like I thought I was never going to get hurt. You know, you kind of think you're a little bit like indestructible. And then obviously I had the hip surgeries and that was honestly one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, because it was just, it was like, it really got my focus down to, I just need to return to the baseball field in the best physical condition that I can. So, you know, it was like, it was a lot of hours rehabbing. Um, it was both of them, so it was double the amount of work that it usually is. Um, but looking back, like, I, uh, I, I I, killed the rehab. I, I can say that confidently. I, I did a lot of rehab. Um, but it really, like, makes you understand how lucky you are to be playing because you don't know how many games you have left, basically. I know it's, like, everybody says that, but when you're, like, when you're still in it and you can still – you can still – when you get hurt, it gives you that perspective from an early, early age, relatively early age. So um, it was tough. There were definitely some low points, um, definitely some low points, but in the end, it it led to where I'm at right now Um, and uh, it was tough, but I got through it and I'm I'm proud to say I got through it. So it it is what it is.
0: Yeah, it kind of looks like you're just Enjoying the game, um, and and I think the grind of college sports. for so many athletes that I talk to, you know, sometimes it can get overwhelming. And you know, your face lit up when you were mentioning your wiffle ball days. Uh, and so it's just sort of that engagement with the game, right? Of, of it just being fun and it being that a game. Yeah, you know, serious, high stakes, college level. There's expectations, blah blah blah. But just enjoying the the dang game of baseball, right? Hundred percent, like hundred percent.
2: So what I tell, like the young guys, like when they're when they're struggling a little bit, it's just like, dude, you gotta go enjoy it. <laughs> like, like you can't be overthinking it because I used to overthink it, and it wasn't nearly as fun as as when you don't overthink it. So, like at its very base, like why would you pick overthinking versus having more fun? Because that's what the it's a game. Like you you have to have fun playing the game. I think the best players in the world probably have a really fun time playing the game, even when they're zero for four. So um yeah i mean having fun is definitely the most important part
0: i gotta jump in one more jordan sorry because i gotta ask about the wiffle ball rules because that's that's another thing <laughs> is the wiff, all, every wiffle ball set of rules is different it is unique to the the, <laughs> the setting and the atmosphere whether you're playing in a yard or uh, I know in my childhood days, we would play in the driveway, so it would be like a ground ball off the opposite curb that stayed in the road was an out. If it bounced over the curb, it was a base hit. Over the far sidewalk was a home run, that kind of stuff. What were the rules of Dustin Demeter and and his fam's with football games?
2: Well, we had three fields that we would play at. Um, the first was my backyard. Uh, the second was my cousin's backyard, and then we had a, a park that was close. And it, it – <laughs> we we played it like a normal game I don't know why but like if you put it in play you had to bean the guy to get out so like if you, you gotta pick up the wiffle ball and you gotta gun it at him as hard as you can you hope you hit him or it's gonna be a home run because it's gonna go wherever and the bases are real short so I mean it was looking back it was kind of a clown show but <laughs> but it was really fun and we had like we had a short portion left on one field and then the other field was like it was short all around. So um, basically the only altered rules of our game
1: was you had to beam the guy to get him out. <laughs> that's great. That, that's, that's the best addition right there. The, you know, it doesn't sound like normal rules, right? You're playing, you're playing kickball a little bit out there and uh, that, that, that's a lot of fun. I, I just got one more for you. Dustin. I'm just curious what the, what side of the the mindset the goal is for you guys as you finish out the, the regular season here, what 12 games left basically after this weekend off and as you come down the home stretch, just, you know, what, what, what's the, what are you guys shooting for here?
2: Um, We're our big thing right now is take it one game at a time. Um, Like right now our folks Friday at Northridge. And then when that one's over, it'll be the double header at Northridge. And um, obviously we're still in playoff contention and, I think everybody want, wants it in their bones to make the playoffs because we feel like we could make some noise with our, with our one-two punch in our lineup and like all the guys back there in the pen, like we got a really talented, really good team. Um, so I'd say ultimately the post season is, is in our brain, but it's a one kind of game at a time mindset you just gotta keep winning, so that's basically our mindset. Just keep winning, <laughs>
0: playing some rainbow baseball, yeah, what about you? I mean, you're still listed as a red shirt junior uh because you know everyone got that free year of eligibility from the covid season. Um, I know you want to focus on the task at hand that's that's part of of what makes you you, uh, but any thought as to you know after this season moving forward um you know because a lot of athletes also have to deal with the um, balance of where they are uh, in in terms of their academics and 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 getting close to graduation and the timing of all of that stuff as well
2: right so I mean I'm on pace to graduate uh this semester I'm finishing up my last class probably just right after this podcast I'll, I'll finish that one all right um, yeah um but um after this year I mean I don't know um it's just kind of one of those things. It comes back to the the base of, of what we've been talking about is just taking it one day at a time and you know letting the chips fall as they may. So um, another big thing that I I just I've been has been going through my head a lot is like you just you got to keep proving it. Um, like nobody cares what you did last weekend. Like nobody cares. It doesn't matter because there's this great Phil Jackson quote that. Like, keeps that has been popping in my head a lot and it was um you're only successful is your last success so basically what he's saying is like you just got to keep doing it like keep proving it and that's individually what i'm i've been thinking a lot lately is you just got to keep proving it nobody cares what you did it's about what you're doing um so uh, yeah that's about it
0: yeah i mean i, I think By virtue of the way you've been playing the game, you know, getting a lot of of national attention, you know, who knows what opportunities can arise uh, here uh, moving forward for you individually and and certainly as it pertains to this team, uh, good to see them playing some good baseball overall as we head down the home stretch. Uh, Dustin, it's been a lot of fun, man. Been wanting to talk with you on the podcast for a while uh, and looking forward to uh, when we uh, host you guys on Spectrum Sports for the last home series in a couple of weeks. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. It was a blast. All right, big thanks to Dustin for jumping on with us. He's kind of an interesting guy. He, he just seems very low-key, soft-spoken, at peace with where he's at and where his career has gone, even with some of the trials
1: and tribulations he's experienced along the way. Yeah, he, he, he really seems like he's having fun, right? And he is enjoying the experience. Um, and, and hopefully he can continue this hot run. All right, so time now for our post game. Best and
0: worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll off containers for commercial, construction, and residential use. Family owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community. Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit WasteProHawaii.com for services information. All right, I'll start with my best, and uh, we're going to give it up for another University of Hawaii team that is playing deep into the postseason. That's the Rainbow Wahine water polo team. They claim the Big West Conference title, rallying from down 5-2 to defeat UC Irvine in the tournament title match, which was held in San Diego. UH is now the sixth seed in the National Championship Tournament and will play three-seeded UCLA in Los Angeles in the quarterfinal round. That match will take place on May 14th. Uh, Lalele Mata'afa is my favorite. She is just absolutely uh, an incredible athlete, is a total beast out there, Uh, and she is just one of Several really, really talented water polo players, and I think Hawaii has a shot. If if they play well, uh, they have a shot to make some noise here in this NCAA tournament.
1: Some MIL graduates, right, with legit shots on University of Hawaii rosters to maybe go ahead and and threaten for a national <laughs> championship, right? Colton Cowan, the men's volleyball team into the final. Uh, Lalile Mataafa of Lahaina Luna, a couple of wins away, maybe from playing for a national title, which is really cool. And and you got uh you know, a trio of MIL graduates for playing for Cal Lutheran, who's the division three representative women's water polo kind of akin to men's volleyball, where it's sort of a smorgasbord of different divisions. Like there's D three teams that also play women's water polo that play in the national championship tournament. Uh, So it's kind of all one division. Uh, You got a couple of Baldwin grads, Jackson Donahue, Terrence Sato, Ariana Johnson of Seabury hall, also on that Cal Lutheran team. So yeah, there's a lot of MIL flavor, a lot of Maui flavor to that. Women's water polo championship taking place in Westwood. So yeah, we'll, we'll be cheering for the Bulls. Though they they got a they got a shot at this thing. Yeah, you know we love when the Valley Isle is represented. All right, Jordan, what's your best? Yeah, my best. This is a public service announcement. Uh, Taco Bell made some very drastic <laughs> and controversial menu changes late last year. They got rid of the Mexican pizza. They got rid of all the potato items, right? The Cheesy Fiesta potatoes, the potato burritos and things like that. Uh, they have brought back the Cheesy Fiesta potatoes and the potato items. Uh, I found this out last weekend when I made a little trek to our local Taco Bell here around the neighborhood. And boy, much to my joyfulness, uh, found out that they're back. So for everybody out there, just, just a little PSA. So the good people at Taco Bell—they read your letters. They did, yeah. I actually got a—I actually got a letter back. Uh, they just said coming soon, and uh, apparently it's—it's it's here. A long anticipated move there by Taco Bell. I love me some Taco Bell,
0: by the way. Who doesn't? So good, big time guilty pleasure, and almost immediately regrettable decision each and every time. All every right, time. <laughs> let's go to our worst, my worst. Uh, The Angels uh, decide to cut Albert Pujols. Uh, He's in the final year of his 10-year, $240 million contract. Uh, He is sixth in career home runs in Major League Baseball history, 667. Three-time MVP, 10-time All-Star invite, two-time World Series champ. Uh, He has to be considered the greatest first baseman of all time, right? Um, And I think what makes it the worst is because he's just one of my favorite guys. And I got to meet him at one of Kurt Suzuki's charity fundraising events, over on the island of maui at the four seasons and he was an incredibly kind and, and nice dude, took photos with everybody, signed every autograph that was asked of him, uh, and also helped to raise some money for uh, Kurt's Family Foundation. So um, he's just a good dude. Will always have a place in, in my heart because of uh, how he helped the Hawaii community in that regard. Uh, he also has a $1 million a year deal with the Angels to be the team's ambassador. So I'm not sure how that's going to work because he's saying that he's not done playing, and I'm not sure if there's a team that's going to pick him up. But if he's playing for another team, it makes it awfully hard to be the face Of another franchise while you're wearing another uniform Uh, but that's just my words just because it's sad to see Albert Pujols perhaps at the end of his career his first 10 years when he was with the Cardinals I mean you could put that up against any 10-year duration of any player in Major League Baseball history
1: and it holds its own arguably the best 10 years we've ever seen yeah it's just a bummer right because he's had such a good career and then you kind of get to the back like he hasn't been good for the last couple of years, he's hitting 198 this year. His he's, he's on-base percentage is 250. Like it, it, it hasn't been good, but they gave him that super long contract, right? And, and so it's almost like forced retirement or something. Who knows? He may want to keep playing. Maybe it's, you know, he keeps the angels in good graces and, and they, they make it work as the ambassador type thing. But, yeah, it, the numbers speak for themselves. But But everybody I've ever talked to that has had a chance to meet him only has great things. Like, he's the nicest guy. He's also really good-looking. Like, what an incredibly handsome,
0: good-looking man. It's <laughs> just guy, unfair. The guy has it all, yeah. He's I mean, got it the, all. God blessed a lot uh, onto that guy. He bestowed a lot of blessings onto Albert Pujols, that's for sure. Anyway,
1: what's your worst? Yeah, my worst. I'm going to uh, circle back to the ESPN NFL draft coverage. I just got like a bone to pick. <laughs> well, the first of all, the, the Roger Goodell chair thing, I thought was just the worst gimmick ever. I thought it was so lame. But ESPN, like I, I usually like ESPN NFL coverage, but I just I just thought they 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 came up so short, like just on the the talent that they put out there, right? Um, like Mike Greenberg was hosting the thing, which is like, what else can they give him at this yeah. point? His yeah. first year, right? They got rid of Trey Wingo, who did a great job of hosting the draft for all those years after Chris Berman, and it's like, what? Do, Mike Greenberg's already on my radio. He's already hosting a show on ESPN in the morning. He's already hosting all these other things. It's like, what do I need more Mike Greenberg for? And they got Burger McFarlane out there, who wasn't good enough for Monday Night Football, but he's good enough for hours of draft coverage. Like, how does that work? Mel Kuyper is Mel Kuyper, right? He's a staple. I don't mind him at all. You got to get him out there. And then you got Lewis Riddick on the, on the set, who's like carrying everybody. I love Lewis Riddick. I think yeah, he's too. the best analyst in the game. Uh, but it's like, why is Mike Greenberg out? Like, they have so many other talented individuals who actually cover the NFL full-time. And I really enjoy the new NFL... Live lineup I don't know why there was no Marcus Spears who's terrific at his job I don't know why there was no Mina Kimes who's great at breaking down this stuff I don't know why there's no Dan Orlovsky who's great on the telestrator and breaking down X's and O's we got Booger McFarlane and Mike Greenberg where all these guys are just sitting at home like tweeting analysis like they've got like Dan Orlovsky's in a hoodie at home putting up videos on Twitter like what did he do to desert like and then on Saturday to, to just shove a shiv in my my side they had Reese Davis Herb Street, McShay, and Lewis Riddick on the set. I was like, why couldn't we have this? If they were good enough for day three, why weren't they good enough for primetime? And why are McShay and Kuyper on different broadcasts? Like, I want them to debate. I want them to disagree. I want them to tell me why it was not a good pick, not only why it was a good pick. Like, there was just too much positivity. I needed debate. I needed banter. And I needed less booger. So, in other words, what you're
0: saying is next year, Stephen A. Smith. Put Stephen A. Smith on the desk. That, that's what that's what yep, I extracted yep. from. I need that Greeny, work. Stephen A. Kellerman, and nobody else, <laughs> and accomplish nothing. Hey, but hey, that's the uh, sports talk biz in a nutshell, right there. And that's our best and worst in a nutshell. Brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii. Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, or at Talk Sports eight hundred eight. Big thanks to Dustin Demeter, uh, Jordan. We'll do it again next week, bro.